Hey guys, welcome to the Improvement Podcast, where the mission is to help young men develop their character, identity, and mindset in order to activate their potential and achieve their goals in life. And so today we have another special guest. His name is Alan Stevens, and he is an international profiling and communication specialist, as well as the creator and host of the We Together Initiative and the Campfire Project. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you very much. I'm being looking forward to having a chat with you today. Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to it as well. And so for those that aren't familiar with your work, could you tell them a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, um, as you said, uh, profiling communication specialist, which means that I help people to read other people. So I'm a profiler. So by being able to uh, look at your facial features, I know your personality. And then when I'm talking to you, I've got your body language and expressions that then tell me your uh, emotions, whether I've read you right and whether uh, you're telling me the truth. And uh, so that's uh, what I do as a career, and I help people to be able to read each other more effectively for the sole purpose of building stronger relationships, whether that be in your personal life or whether that be in your um, uh, business. And as you said, I'm also the host and uh, uh, creator of the Campfire Project and the We Together Initiative, which is a uh, safe place on uh, Facebook originally for men, a place where they could come and tell their stories and give themselves permission to, uh, to do that. And I've had women in there from day one. And uh, after we brought the men into having one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations and then into panel discussions, talking about all things that were affecting men and their families, we then brought the women into the conversations. And in three years, we've had um, about 400 hours of uh, interviews where it's all been respectful. Not once have we had uh, any man or any woman being rude to anybody else. No bigotry, no sexism and no racism. Okay, that's definitely good to hear. And it also gives me some more perspective too on everything that you do. And so just from your time in this sort of field, what would you say have been some of the main challenges, especially from what you talked about with having the forum where there was the open discussion? Well, the main thing was the, uh, the situation that we've had worldwide with individual groups. We've had Me Too and Men Too, which were both important uh, groups because women were going through a lot of abuse and so that needed to be highlighted. And then with the, uh, once we got that in place then we found that some of the women were abusing the, the situation. And so men too started. So what we have is two uh, tribes looking at each other. And of course they're pointing at each other as the problem. Where you're never going to get a solution that way. So when I created the hashtag we together and the campfire project, that was all about being able to stand shoulder to shoulder, look at the problems and not look at each other as the problem. And so we could have respectful uh, conversations. And it was because of the uh, situations where everybody was looking at blaming everybody else. And you don't change your circumstance until you change the way you look at things yourself. You look for, if you look for problems, that's all you're going to find. If you're looking for solutions, you'll find the solutions. Just depends on where your focus goes. And that was one of the major problems with people's individual uh, focus. Hmm, I like that you pointed that out how whenever you have an eye for something, whenever you're looking to see something in society, whatever it is, how it's going to appear prevalent and you're always going to be able to pick that out uh, whenever it's something that's focused on. And so I like how you kind of touched on that. And so another question I have about this, because it's, it's pretty interesting to me, is what was it about your life? Or I would say, what was the catalyst that sparked you to be the one to step up and do the weeds together thing and to, I guess, take this role of uh, making this happen? Well, probably uh, all the things that happened in my life. I've been, um, grew up with a father, uh, when my father died when I was three years old. So I grew up with my mother and sister. I'd always been pretty much a loner all through my life. 
uh, when I um, started my first uh, job, I was working with a uh, national telephone carrier over here. And five years into my training, I was then put in charge of men who were all older than me. My second in charge was 15 years older than me, and I was 23 at the time. And I had to get him and the rest of the staff who were also older than me on side. I joined the surf club, became a surf lifesaver in my mid thirties. And uh, now I was the same age as everybody. And I thought, great, this is fine. But then they got me to be a patrol captain where I was put in charge of everybody that nobody else wanted on their patrol, turned that into the patrol of the year and then became the club captain and zone supervisor of three beaches. And all of that was now same age as everybody else. But as they all pointed out to me, They'd been there since I were young kids and here I was in my mid thirties joining the club. So they had far more, a lot more experience than me, but I was now in charge of them. And then in my late thirties, my first wife left and I had three boys to raise on my own. So from being the youngest in employment, the least experienced in the surf club to being right out of my depth, running two businesses and raising three boys at the same time was quite a trial at that stage. So. It's been all of those things along the way. And there was my work working with men in business. Most were telling me that they didn't know their role in the workplace anymore because of all the gender equality and all the quotas and everything else. And they didn't know their role at home because they thought it was to go out and provide for the family. And now they're being in, uh, saying that uh, we're not uh, home, we're, not, we're absent. We're emotionally absent from the home, we're distanced from them and we can't be in two places at once. So with that, I realized the men were getting angrier and frustrated first of all, angry second, and in some cases that leads to violence. And so the only way to uh, fix any problem is to find the cause of the problem. And the best way there was to create a safe place where men could then come and give themselves permission and tell their stories. And that's how it all came about. Okay, so just to make sure I'm understanding correctly, uh, by you creating that platform for people to be able to express themselves, it gave them a way to express those emotions and a positive way or a way that I guess that wasn't destructive as opposed to like the violent route that they also could have taken, like you had said. That's it. Because most, you know, when you're feeling depressed or down or anything else, you know, especially for men, because women are better, they say they're emotionally connected. Men were just as emotional as women, but the problem is we're disconnected from our emotions. And not that we're not emotional. You know, if we weren't, if that was true, then there wouldn't be as much violence as there is out there. So it came down to the fact that Men are very emotional, but they didn't have a place where they could express it. And most men, you know, who you got to talk to? If you've got no one to talk to, all you do is talk to yourself and you go through the whole same story over and over again. But if you can find the right people to be around, men who understand, who aren't in their ego, men who are trying to be a man and not trying to be the man, then straight away you've got men you can actually listen to. And I just created a safe place where I could hold that person's uh, space and they could then uh, tell their story to somebody who actually listened to it. Well, once we had quite a number of men go through that uh, process, I then brought them into panel discussions. So four of us on Zoom together, filling the screen nicely, and then looking at all the different subjects that come up. And we've covered everything from masculinity, femininity, pornography. We've uh, looked at uh, you know even uh, sex, the uh, size matter in the bedroom and all sorts of things that we've uh, discussed. And in those conversations, once we started having the panel discussions, that's when the women in the group couldn't contain themselves anymore. And they were sending me personal messages going, we've never heard men talk this way before and we love it. How can we get involved? And I said, just put your hands up. That's what I've been waiting for. Because I realized it wasn't just going to be another men's group because when men go to a men's group 
and they come back home again. It's like going to a motivational seminar. You get all hyped up, you go back home again and you hit whatever you walked away from and all of a sudden you draw pull back down again. And then I could see that like motivational uh, seminars, people have become seminar junkies where they're just waiting for the next seminar and they do no real changes in their lives. And I could see that happening with the men, uh, some of the men's groups. And I thought, right, we needed women within the group so that men could then talk to those women. So the trolls are kept away because there are a lot of men and women out there who just want to keep pulling everybody down because that's the only way that they can function. And if you think about it, that's how bullies are made. People who've been bullied then become bullies and they want to drag everybody else down so they can feel better about themselves. And so I wanted to keep those people out of it and just have the, the genuine women within the group. And I knew that once I heard the men talking, they wouldn't be able to hold themselves back anymore. They'd want to get into the conversations. And in three years, just going on to three years now, we've had over 270 of the, the 1800 people in the group have come and told their stories. We've had about 135 uh, panel discussions. So around about the best part of 400 hours of uh, discussions on uh, video and not once has any man or woman been rude to anybody else. From day one, no bigotry, no sexism and no um, racism. I don't care about your gender. I don't care about your, um, uh, your background, your culture or anything else. There's only one requirement when you come into the campfire project and that is that you're going to be respectful to everybody there. And that was the, uh, uh, the guidelines that we set up and everybody's adhered to it. And every conversation we've had and the panel discussions are absolutely brilliant. When you hear men and women talking in that respectful way, it's absolutely magic. I think that's great. You know, it's, I wouldn't say it's unbelievable, but it's definitely surprising that it could get to that point to where everyone could be respectful and I guess have that empathy to put themselves in the other person's shoes to gain their perspective. Because especially now with the social media age and everything, like especially on Twitter and other mediums like that, nobody ever does really try and come from that place of understanding or to listen. People just want to express their opinion. And whenever they disagree with somebody, it's usually in a, a pretty hateful way, not to entertain that some way that they might look at a situation might be flawed or that there are other perspectives that should be considered. And so I think that's great that you kind of provided that for those people. And also to kind of touch on something that you said before about being a man versus being the man. I think that was a, I think that was a great one to bring up. I've never heard that one before, but I'll make sure to use that one in the future. But uh, I think that that's so important as well, because one of those things about it is that whenever you go into it, into friendships and groups with that mindset of having to be the guy, it kind of makes it to where you can't really make those connections with the people around you. And it also makes it troubling mm -hmm. to, I guess, have that um, that connection, I guess you could say, especially like in friendships. I can even say like from mm -hmm. my own personal experience that it kind of limited some of the friendships that I had, you know, pretty much through high school and even college, whenever a lot of us kind of took that mindset of, you know, we didn't really trust each other enough or we're mm -hmm. confident enough in ourselves and our own masculinity, I guess you can say, to express different things and talk about different things that we we're struggling with out of fear of how other people would perceive us or how they might I guess, knock us down on the fictional totem pole of masculinity among our group, I guess you could say. I don't know like what your thoughts are with that or if if maybe what I'm saying is aligning with what you're saying, but I guess, what would you, very much if so. you'd like to touch very on much it? In line. Yeah, see, when you're trying to be the man, you're, you're trying to stand out, about, uh, out away from everybody else. It's a lonely place to be. 
we see it in our political, um, like especially in Australia, we see it in our politicians, we see it in our sporting stars. You know, and this, they're all doing the wrong thing. They're cheating, they're lying, they're doing everything to try and be out in front. It's a lonely place to be because you're always got to be on tender hooks. You're always got to be watching to see who's coming up behind you. Whereas when you want to be a man, you want to be the best version of yourself. And who you want around you when you're being the best version of yourself? Both men and women who are doing exactly the same thing. One creates a very lonely place, whereas the other one creates a village. It creates a community. And that's what we've found when you're trying to be the best version of yourself. There's no comp competition except with your old self, not with anybody else. And so it's the only way to move forward. And that's what we've done within the Campfire Project and the connections and the collaborations that have been made from that have been absolutely magic. It's a nice, comfortable place to be. The men also then are able to be vulnerable because they know there are other men around them who want to be the best version of themselves as well. And in that, they're also being vulnerable as well because a lot of men think that being vulnerable is weakness. It takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable. It takes you know, far more than it is to try and be the man. And so if a man really wants to stand up and be recognised for the power that he actually does have, then he needs to be, act like a man and have the other people around him and be vulnerable with them as well. Because the nurture that comes from that and the support that you get and therefore the friendships are far greater than you'll ever get when you're trying to be the man. I definitely agree. And one thing I would also think is that when you work to be a man instead of the man, it also leads to you developing at a faster rate too, because you have that influence of other people around you that are kind of contributing to that and also helping you to build that awareness and also face some of those things that you wouldn't want to be, I guess, vulnerable about whenever you're trying to be the man. At least that's kind of the way that I've experienced it, where whenever I pushed my ego out and was willing to face some of these things that I didn't like about my life or maybe about myself head on, and you know, also be willing to talk to other people about that and get other perspectives, that's when I noticed I started to make the biggest strides in my growth, as opposed to when I was trying to be the man, I guess you could say, and would try and suppress those things or act like they didn't exist. Because for me to be the man, some of those insecurities and such, I guess, technically couldn't exist. That's exactly right. So you limit yourself in so many different ways when you're, you're not open to other people. And being able to just open up, it's, it's fearful at first when people start to do it. They're if you haven't done it before, and especially a lot of men who are, especially at my age, when you get into the baby boomers and uh, around that age, we were told all the way through not, you know, to be seen but not heard, to suck our uh, feelings down and keep, you know, just step up and do the right thing. But at the same time, don't tell anybody what we were feeling. And we were brilliant students. We learned it really well. So for us to then turn around and decide that, okay, we now needed to share our emotions it was a big step. And for, you know, for men to be able to do that, they need a, a safe place. There's an old saying that it takes a village to raise children, but it also takes a community or the responsibility of a community to create a safe place where men can then give themselves permission to tell their stories. And that was my approach to it. It's not up to the community to give permission. It's a responsibility of the community to allow the um, uh, create that space where the men can allow themselves to uh, tell their stories and in holding somebody's space it's a real honor when somebody actually sits there and tells you their story and you sit and listen to it and 
as I said, there's been over 271 on one um, uh, interviews. I've done most of those. However, we've got, because my attitude to life as well is a leader's job is to make themselves redundant. So I know that a lot of men will create uh, men's uh, groups and they'll say, oh, this is my group. And I go, well, okay, you, you built the bus and now you're driving the bus. But my attitude to it is I built it, I'm driving it. Now it's time for me to get into the passenger seat and let others uh, drive it as well. And by the way, the view from the passenger seat is much uh, better than the one in the driver's seat because you can look around and take everything else in. And with that, I've got quite a number of people that are doing now one-on-ones and panel discussions who have stepped up and taken the pressure off me to be able to look at doing more things. Because if you don't do that, you hold other people back because you're worried. And this is another thing in business, so many men and even women as well, who are so fearful of anybody else coming up and being able to do their job because they feel they're going to lose their job. Well, if you are the one who bring those people up to that level, then you're going to be recognised for that. And if you're working for somebody else, that's when you get a promotion. So if you don't help other people become uh, the best leaders themselves, the end result is you'll hold yourself back. You create a prison for yourself if you're indispensable in that, uh, that position. All my life, I've, in everything I've done, I've always made myself dispensable. So I'm building other people up to that point so I could then go on and do the next thing. And that's how I grow, by helping them to grow first. And so I've always made my environment in that particular way. So my attitude's always been about growth. But it was for a long time, it was very hard for me to actually share my feelings with people. Now I don't have a problem with it. And when I have other people sharing their feelings with me, you know, the feeling of uh, respect that I get from that, the fact that I, they actually are willing to trust me enough to share their deeper stories. And we've had some really horrific stories, uh, what people have been through. It's a real honour to be in that position. So it's through bringing people together that I haven't just done something for everybody else. I've really um, made my life so much better as well. As I say, you can't light someone else's path without lighting your own. And so everything I've done has been a community effort all the way through. And, you know, from here, you talk about that. I remember you used the word making yourself dispensable. But honestly, just from the value that it sounds like you're bringing to all the people around you, I would think it actually makes you indispensable. Because the thing about mm -hmm. it is that it's rare that you can have that one person where they make every single person around them better and lift them up to the point to where they can have the possibility to do some of those things for themselves. And so if anything, knowing that somebody has that potential uh, within them, I would say that it probably makes them indispensable. And, and also, also another thing I'd also add to that is that for those people that might be scared about somebody taking their place, uh, something, or I guess the way I kind of think about it is that if the overall mission is to, let's say you do what you do to give men a platform to help men to be able to, you know, get past the, uh, I guess, the stigmas and stereotypes of what masculinity is supposed to be and to have that vulnerability. If that's what the main goal is, if someone did happen to come by that could take your place and could do the job better, then I would think that that would be fine. Because if that was the main goal all along and that person can serve in a better way, I feel like that would be even more satisfying. And especially if you were someone that was able to help that person eventually reach that potential, which happened to be higher than yours at least that's kind of the way that i would look at it that's it so when i said this you know you know you, you make yourself dispensable you made yourself dispensable in that position as you've picked up in the bigger picture 
you're making yourself indispensable because right. the value that you're, you bring to the table is greater than what you brought before. Right. And as you keep increasing your value that you bring to the table in the, in the bigger picture, the more growth you actually have. And so my attitude to uh, life has always been two things. One of them came from uh, John Wooden, who was a, a um, coach Basketball from UCLA. Coach. Yeah. And that was um, the most important thing I'll ever learn is the next thing I learn after I think I know everything. And so with that, that's why I've always learned and kept on doing, you know, growing all through my life. But the other one is, and one I really love, is the fact that what you do for yourself dies with you, but what you do for others and for the community isn't always will be eternal. Because if you want to uh, feel that you have value and the, other, the world sees value in you, you can only do that when you're helping other people. So being of service, not being a servant to other people, but being of service to them. And so you change your attitude from being wanting to be the man and having everything. And the same thing with women. There's a lot of women out there doing exactly the same thing. And all I say to them is, well, if you can then come back to being a man or a woman, and being the best version of yourself, the end result is you'll want other people around you, both men and women who have been the best version of themselves, and they're wanting to do the same thing. And all of a sudden now you have a, a very rich life because you've, you've got uh, lots of friends. You've got a lot of people that support you. You're never alone, no matter what the situation. And that's the way I've uh, looked at it. And I thought, well, originally I was a loner. And I, one of the things I always wanted through my life was to have a connection. I've been involved in a lot of things in my life, different groups, because I didn't really belong in my house with the mother and sister. I didn't really belong when I first started uh, working because I felt that I wasn't up to uh, par as far as having the, um, the skills to be able to do what I was doing, even though I was in charge of people. About 20 years ago, I went through um, uh, Aboriginal culture, through Aboriginal uh, law and uh, initiation. So I learned that's where the campfire originally came from, family sitting around the campfire and having conversations. And this is where all the teaching was done. And so that's what led on to the campfire projects. So all my life, it's been separated from everybody. And then I finally realized if I was seen to be a bridge between all these different groups and the way to then really fit in was to create my own bridge. And that's what the campfire project is. But as soon as I've created it, I've already started looking at making myself redundant in there having other people take on those roles so I can then go and do more things. So I just realized my um, whole life has really been one of not only a personal growth, but once I have grown, then share that what I've learned with other people. And so even with coaching, I realize there's a lot of coaches on the planet at the moment who haven't worked through their own stuff. So it's sometimes it's difficult to find a good coach, but if you, what you learn and you grow, once you've learned something, then you have a responsibility to share it with other people. And so you had that progression through your life. And the more you do that, the more you're able to learn yourself, but you're not just looking after yourself, you're able to then pass it on to others. And so with that, you create a groundswell with other people follow you and they grow as well, but you're also growing and following other people. So it's a never ending progression. That's why I say that never stop learning. And that's why um, I like that saying so much, you know, the uh, most important thing you'll ever learn is the next thing you learn after you think you know everything. Yeah. I mean, all that's, that's powerful. And it, I agree with, with um, pretty much all of it. And something that kind of makes me think about too, from having this whole experience that you've had throughout your life and how things have kind of led up to this moment, I'm sure that it's giving you such a strong appreciation of relationships and the value that come with them. 
And so something else that makes me think, kind of think about is based on that perspective that you have on these type of situations now, knowing the role that relationships can play, you know, in your identity and your sense of self and how you interact with others. How do you think having those, I guess, traditional mindsets of, um, I guess, love, communication and that sort of thing of vulnerability, how do you think it limits the relationships between like fathers and sons or grandfathers, that sort of thing? Well, when you, uh, you don't make yourself, allow yourself to be vulnerable, you're isolating other people from you. As I said, I raised three boys on my own. Now, those three boys are fathers themselves, and I'm a grandfather six times over. My oldest grandson is, um, or grandchild, he's um, 16 years old now, heading towards 17. And my youngest uh, uh, granddaughter is um, uh, in her first year of life. So with that, what we find is that so it's a big range between them all. The good thing is that I've got a great connection with my sons. They can uh, call me and ask me for my assistance and things. And I know at the same time, I've got their support as well when I need it. And each boy, they're all different. When I say yeah, boys, they're men you know, in their full rights. Because one of the things I'm really proud of is that they've grown up to be great men. And in that, um, as I say to everybody, I, you know, three sons that I love and respect. And that's what I got out of that marriage with my first wife. And, uh, you know, there's supports to each other. Each of them have different skills. So when any one of them needs that particular skill from their brothers, their brother's there. So they've got that strong connection. And they've been able to have great relationships with their wives as well. Because that was another thing I learned when my first wife left. Of course, I was angry. Uh, but I then realised that if I didn't build a relationship with her, my sons would repeat my history of having broken relationships. But I've had a lot of uh, women in my life. And that's not a boast. That's really a, um, uh, an indictment of stupidity when you think that you find your masculinity through the relationships that you have. You find your masculinity and finding out who you are, what's internal, not what's external. And so I want to make sure my sons grew up with the right attitude. So I had to build a relationship with my ex-wife. And the best way to do that was to look at what did she bring into the marriage that uh, was good, as opposed to me looking at all the negative stuff. And I realised that uh, she had, uh, together, we had produced three boys that have grown up into great men and three boys that I, men that I love and respect. And I wouldn't have had those without her. So it comes down to an attitude, your perception on how you want to look at things. As I said before, you can look at the negative things in your life or you can look at what's positive. And so I did that. We built a, a relationship so that she could then come back in and start to um, uh, co-parent them as well. And as the boys said, they always had two houses that they could go to and neither uh, their mother or I bagged each other. And so they felt comfortable where they were. And that's how they learned to respect us because if we'd been bagging each other, they would have lost respect for each of us as well. And that's what a lot of parents don't realize when they're separated. You know, if they don't uh, look after them in the way they talk to their children about their ex, they'll, you know, the person who bags their uh, ex-partner the most will be the one who actually loses the uh, respect to the children. I like that you brought that up and something else that stuck out to me about that was how you mentioned whenever your boys had different skill sets and such, how instead of thinking that they had to be the perfect guy and be able to do everything on their own, they were willing to go to each other and work as a tribe 
to get those traits from the other brother that might be more proficient at something to get the end result, not necessarily to try and do it their own to protect their ego and potentially put uh, their mission to jeopardy, which you know could have been anything you know from family related stuff or anything else. So I think it's great that you brought that up. And then also, I think that that was a great approach to the situation with your ex-wife where you were able to, I guess you could say in a way, humble yourself, put your ego aside to think about what would be best for your kids long-term and what would be the best example for them. So that way they would be able to not repeat those same mistakes. Because I think that's something that a lot of people really don't pay attention to. They kind of let their ego or their pride kind of get in the way of what's better for the people that are coming after them. And so I really respect that, that that was the stance that you took in that situation. That's right. Cause I think a lot of, um, yeah, our value of what we think uh, love really is, I think quite often we get wrong because if you had loved your, your partner and then you break up and then you got so much anger and everything else, where was the love? That was what happened. I've been married and divorced twice. My second wife was only a, a marriage was only a short one. But in that, it was about ooh, 10, 12 years later, I was at a, um, uh, an event where one of her old girlfriends came up and started talking to me and was telling me that uh, she, uh, my, uh, Caroline was my second wife, that Caroline had found a new man and was really happy. And I had this feeling of warmth that went through my body. And I thought, oh, this is strange. And I realized that I was really happy that she had found a partner that she was really happy with. And I realized, I went, oh, now I know what love is. That's when you really care about the other person and you want them to have a, a really great life. And you let, you let your own emotions and everything else go. Because again, this was another uh, partner who walked out. And so I could have had all that angst and everything else, which I had at first, uh, but very quickly got over it. And I realized that if you're fighting and angry at your ex-partner, then where was the love in the first place? Was it just lust that you were actually uh, you had going at the time? Did you really care for them? And at the same time, being angry with somebody else, let's face it, it's like taking poison and hoping that they will die. Because while you're angry, the only person being affected is you. you know, they're not hearing it, they're not feeling it, but you hate the other person, the only person who's being affected is you. And every thought we have creates a chemical reaction in our body, negative thoughts, they will eat our organs. Positive thoughts, they will feed them. So if you've got nothing but anger for your ex-partner, guess who's getting sicker? You. Not them, but you. And so if you you want to be selfish and look after yourself, then let go of your anger you got for somebody else. That's the quickest way to improve your health. Okay, okay. I respect that. And so it also kind of makes me think of something else. We had talked about uh, partnerships, relationships, and that such, but I also kind of like to touch on the friend side of things. And so one thing that I've kind of been trying to work on on the side is figuring out how to be a better friend to my friends. And so part of that process has been putting some of these bad habits behind kind of like what you talked about earlier in the episode to make sure that I could do whatever it is that needed to be done on my end to support my friends with whatever issues they might be struggling with and more. And so just based on what you've learned from this whole process of doing the campfire project and such, what are some tips that you give young men uh, to consider to be better friends to their, their male friends? Well, the first thing is just to, uh, to listen. Now, we've got a thing over here we call Are You OK Day? 
Well, it should be, are you okay every day? Now, it's the day where we ask our, our friends, our mates, our work colleagues, etc., are you okay? Is everything okay in your life? And when you ask that question, listen. Because most people, it's like when people say, oh, how are you? And everyone says, fine. You know, freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional is what fine stands for. And we find that uh, people then, you know, we're not really listening. We ask the question, but who actually stops and listens to uh, the answer? When you do listen to the answer, as I say to people, they say you've got uh, two ears and one mouth. And I go, no, you've got two eyes, two ears and one mouth. Use them in that proportion. Look and you'll pick up so much information when you watch. Then you ask questions and you stop and you listen. You hold that space for your friend. If you're really a great friend, you'll just sit there and listen to what they're, going, they're saying without getting emotionally connected and wound up in it. There's three levels of empathy. You've got cognitive empathy, which I can see that you're in pain. And let's face it, you know, bullies, torturers, anybody like that needs to be able to do that. Otherwise, they're not going to get their jollies. They need to be able to see you're in pain. We all feel that. We see somebody's pain and we go, oh, yeah, I can, I can feel that. I can see it. But then the next level is the emotional where we really get into the feeling of it. And emotional empathy is, is good to have. But they used to say that a problem shared is a problem halved. Well, it's not really a problem shared and not dealt with is a problem magnified. But a problem shared and dealt with and handled together is then a, a problem halved. Whereas uh, with emotional empathy, we see it every day on Facebook, social media. Somebody makes a statement and everybody takes sides. That's emotional empathy, where people go, I don't like what I'm feeling here. It's got nothing to do with the situation. It's just they don't like feeling whatever they're feeling. And so they'll take a side and there's arguments. Whereas the next level from there is cognitive. Sorry, um, uh, compassionate, I should say. And compassionate is, you know, I can see your pain, I can feel your pain, but let's do something about it. And that's what we do. And sometimes doing nothing is doing something. Because if some you're holding space for a friend and they're talking and telling you all the things that are going on in their life and you sit and listen with compassion, the end result is you're not trying to fix it. Yes, you're sitting there, you may not like the feeling of uh, the emotions that are going through, but you're holding the space for them, it's not about you. And so this is what I found in the Campfire Project. I've had some men tell some horrific things that have happened in their past. I'm highly emotional. As a massage therapist, I was picking up everybody's emotions. I had to learn how to control that, not let it control me. And now I can hold people's space, just listen to them. They can talk for hours about all the things that are affecting them. And then if I'm in that state, I can then give them constructive uh, comments when they ask me for them, not before they ask me for them though. When they're ready to hear it and they've asked, then I'll uh, share my stuff with them. And then when I walk away, I just go back to what I was doing. I don't carry anything with me. And if you're able to do that with your friends, that's when you're really a true friend because you're able to then hold that space, let them be able to express everything they need to express, knowing that nobody's going to then tell them whether they're right or wrong. Because I think the standard at the moment is the research is showing that when somebody starts to tell others what they're going through, people start to respond within 19 seconds. How much information can your other person tell you in 19 seconds before you jump in and try and uh, give advice? The yeah, thing I mean. is, you know, I just say to people, Excuse the French, the words, shut up and just listen. Hold that space. Do If you're a friend, 
be that friend for the other person and just listen to what they've got to say. And then ask them questions. If you can, don't tell the person what to do, but if you ask questions where they then steer them, the, um, their own uh, thinking around it and they'll find their own answers. Use hypotheticals. They say, oh, well, such and such. They go, well, what happens if you do that? What else could you do? And let them work their way through it. That's being a true friend. You have your own opinion. That's your opinion, not one that's going to work with them. You've got a different life to them. Their life is different to yours. So allow them, guide them to be able to find their own solutions. Yeah, I appreciate you touching on that because that was going to be one of my next questions, pretty much what to say exactly, because I know one of the things I struggled with personally whenever friends have come to me and confided in me in an issue is one, not being that person that automatically just tries to give advice that's unsolicited, but also another issue is just really not knowing what to say. And so I like how you broke that down pretty much where you ask questions, get them to kind of talk themselves through the situation. And if anything, I would think they'd be able to come up with solutions on their own just from you kind of probing and showing that that extra interest as opposed to just saying, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sure you'll figure it out or something else generic like that. Yeah, just by, as I say, it may take a little bit longer, but I guarantee that your friend's going to appreciate you more. They're going to respect you a lot more. They're going to feel that you really cared and they're going to feel better in themselves as well. And that's half the, the battle is for the person to feel, first of all, a little bit better about themselves because then we can deal with more issues. When we feel really low, everything just carry, feels like it's too much to carry. But when you feel that uh, you're not alone, that your, other people understand and everything else, that helps to validate the way you're feeling. It's like if you've got somebody who's standing there, they're really angry and somebody says, oh, well, try and quieten them down. You go, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. The other person just goes, hey, you're just telling me that the way I'm feeling is not real. But all they want to do is hit you. So if I've got somebody who's angry, I will always meet their anger in the way I'm, and I will come back strong and everything else and then steer them in another direction because I validate the person is angry, first of all. And then I can actually get into a discussion where we can take it to a, an amicable situation. It's the same thing when you're listening to uh, somebody and they're all upset and everything else. You empathise, you recognise, you, you validate that, yeah, I can understand, you know, that that would be affecting you in that way. The whole thing is that when you stop and you think about it, nobody does anything to us. People will do things, but how we respond to it is our choice. So if you can, in that conversation, show them another way of looking at it by asking the questions and virtually like a hypothetical where they work it out themselves, they then realize a different way to do things. So the best way to help somebody is to guide them, not tell them, but guide them to where they understand a different way of doing things than they've already been doing. And that's one of the best ways to help them. Don't worry so much about what do I need to say? First priority is hold their space. Show that you're listening, that you, you, you empathise. You may not be able to say, look, I know how you feel because, you know, and nobody can really say that about anything to anybody else because the same thing could happen to you and the same that, that happens to me, but both of our responses will be different because we're different people. There are no two people on the planet who are the same. This idea of sticking people's personalities into individual boxes, you know, you know uh, taking systems and saying, right, we've got 
like a zodiacs, 12 zodiacs, and the 7.7 .7 billion people on the planet fit into those um, uh, 12 boxes, or in psychometric profiling, where it might fit into 16, is rubbish. You know, everybody is a different personality, and everybody, even twins, have different experiences. And therefore, whatever uh, situation we're in, yes, I've got an idea that must have been painful and everything else, but I've got no way of knowing what pain you've been through. And so recognizing that and saying to the person, look, you know, I can appreciate that must have been uh, really terrible. You know? And be honest, I can't, uh, I can't tell you how I would have feel in, uh, in that situation because I haven't uh, been through that situation, but tell me more. You know? Tell me what, you know, how you're going to handle that. Give me some ideas of what you could do in, uh, it's differently to what you've been doing uh, so far. And it's in that by asking those questions that uh, you can help that person find a, their own solution. And as I said, their own solution, not your solution. When you give advice, that's your solution, not theirs. And that's why advice never works. Thank you for breaking it down like that. You, know, you pretty much touched on all the different elements that I was thinking of. And so that really kind of makes it pretty drawn out and clear. And so another thing that also popped into my mind is, I guess the part that leads up to that whenever you address the person about something they might be dealing with, like, let's say if they don't approach you with it. And so I guess that kind of goes into being able to read the person. And then from there, coming up with a way to kind of formulate your approach to do it in a way to where you can be, I guess, sensitive to whatever it is they might be, um, be bothered by. What are some tips that you give for that when it comes to maybe noticing some changes in a friend uh, around you and approaching that situation in a way to where you can get that best end result of, of helping them be guided through that situation. You know, as I was saying before, with my profiling work, you know, your facial features, you think about it, you lift weights, you're going to build muscles up. We know that everything we feel inside, we express outwardly. That's why the micro expressions and expressions in general and body language work. But the, uh, if you put those two together, when you concentrate in a certain way, you create ridges and crevices on your face that give away your personality. That's where I come in and that's where I do my profiling work. But you can see you know, things like uh, in the eyes, for instance, the irises, the colored section of the eye. You know, you look at a baby, they're very large. As we get older, it starts to reduce in size and there's more white in the eyes. When you got, uh, first of all, you got the natural uh, shine in people's eyes. You got the real sparkly ones, dark eyes that are really sparkly. They're magnetic, and people will come up to it, uh, to them and tell them their life stories, connect with them really uh, quickly. Great for a, a counselor or even a salesperson to have those sort of eyes. Then we get down to the stage where that sparkle just does, uh, doesn't appear there, but that's just majority of people on the planet. But then you get to uh, the next level, which is where somebody's exhausted, long hours have been working hard. It's like the lights are on, but no one's home. And you know that that's the first level of stress. That's what we call fugacity. People who run uh, exhausted. Uh, and then you have the next level where you'll actually see there is a, a medical condition where the iris of the eye can reduce in size, but it'll also reduce when the adrenals and everything else shut down through uh, ongoing stress. And you'll see one iris start to get smaller than the other. And when you've got two different size irises in the eyes, you know that there's a next level of stress. This is when people start to get accident prone. You know, their vision's off. They'll, they'll look over their shoulder when they're pulling out from the side of the road and the road's clear. And as they pull out, they get hit by a bus. And so that's the next level. And then the next one is when both eyes get very small, the irises. 
There used to be a thing that if a salesman had small irises or anybody had small irises, you couldn't trust them. Well, if they've got small irises, they're going through very deep stress. They've had stress for a long period of time and they don't trust other people. And therefore they don't open up and we feel because they're not opening up, we can't trust them. So where we used to not trust them, we should be looking at them and going, hey, something else is going on here. How can I help them? But if you just notice if your friends start to go quiet, then you know that something's going on. You know, the more that you observe other people and know what your friends are like, what their normal behavior is, and when there's variations, that's when you start to notice things are going on. But also their expressions as well are important. It's like um, Robin Williams with, um, you know, taking his life, everyone said they were surprised. I'm looking at him and going, he'd been unhappy for ages as far back as I can remember. When you've got somebody who's over jovial all the time, at the moment the jovial side stops, just look for the quick expression that appears after that. And if it's, you can see the people who aren't happy, who are just putting on a mask for everybody else. There's so much you can pick up when you're able to read people. But just being anybody else, just being a friend, just watch for any changes. You know, ask some questions, um, just in your conversations about what they were doing through the day, et cetera and see if, if they're not as bubbly as they used to be, something's going on. And that's when you can ask them, hey, I've got a feeling something else is going on. Do you want to talk about it? And if the person says no, you go, well, look, just remember that I'm here and keep offering that, but don't nag them. That's definitely something to think about because yeah. I've never, of course, I guess since I'm not a specialist, of course, I never kind of went that in depth into it where you even got to the points where you talked about like the different sides of their irises and then also the flash in their face that they have maybe after laughing or something like that that's something that i never would have i guess paid attention to until you just brought it up to me so i'm glad that you touched on that and that's something to consider whenever i'm talking to people in the future and i hope that the listeners will kind of take that stuff as well and so i guess one question i have kind of in relation to that is what was it that motivated you to get into uh, learning the art of reading people? Well, the main ones, I said there were all those events through my life, but it was my um, combination of two things. It was my second wife when she left, so that was a bit of a surprise. Well, I knew things weren't that crash hot, but for her to just walk up and uh, say that she wanted to, um, to leave, when I realised that I've been doing uh, body language, I've worked with, I've had my master's in NLP, I've been... Uh, uh, doing psychometric profiling, I've uh, had all those skills and I thought, well, I should be able to read people, but I'd missed a lot of the science. And so then uh, about the same time, I was working with a company that taught currency trading and none of their students made any money. And they got me to come in to figure out what was going on. And that was the days when I used to use psychometric profiling like Myers-Briggs and DISC and other systems like that. And we'd profile the people, then we'd start training them. And especially when they put their money on the table after they'd finished their course, they weren't matching their personalities that we got from these reports. And I knew I needed a better way of reading people. And so with the catalyst of both my second wife leaving and that situation, I started searching and I was helping a friend who was running a uh, spiritual retreat and I was running a workshop in there and I was using um, Myers-Briggs as a... Uh, a bit of a, a, um, a, a workshop where we get the different dichotomies, all the extroverts on one side of the room, introverts on the other, and you know, run that role plays and then get those that were more people orientated or systems orientated, do the same thing and showing everybody that no two people were really identical. 
they were all different to each other. At the end of the workshop, one of the guys walked up to me and said, uh, you ever looked at reading faces? And as I said before, the most important thing I'll ever learn. And so um, I got on uh, the internet and uh, got onto Google. I found Paul Ekman who did all the research on the micro expressions, started uh, training with his group and then um, uh, found a lady who worked with the facial features started training with her and then looked at it and went, why isn't Paul doing what, and all the other people who are doing micro expressions, why aren't they looking at the facial features? And why wasn't uh, Naomi who was doing the facial features looking at the micro expressions? And I realized, well, I understood why the, the psychologists weren't because there used to be an old system called phrenology, which were bumps on the, the head itself. And looking at that, you'd be able to you know, say whether somebody was a serial killer and that sort of thing, which is a load of rubbish. But the face itself, I'm talking about the face, not the head, the facial features, as I said, the way you think and uh, um, uh, think about things and process information, excuse me, you will pull expressions on your face. And if you concentrate like this over and over, you're going to build the ridges here. You'll get these little lines through the, the forehead here as well. And with all of that, that then becomes a roadmap of how you like to think and process. That's your personality. Whereas the phrenology was about character. Personality is how you think and process, whereas character is what you're thinking and processing. So two people can look very similar because they've thought in a certain way and created similar facial features. One can be a saint, one can be a sinner. So one's figuring out how can I help the people around me? And the other one's thinking about how can I help me at everybody else's expense? And so that's where the difference came in. And I realized a lot of the psychologists who were using the expressions and those that were trained in that area still had their mindset on the old phrenology. And so when I put it all together and I thought, right, the facial features tell me the personality. <coughs> I can then look at the person and understand how I need to change the way I like to be spoken to because I know where I fit on the scale compared to them, how I've changed to actually match them. Once I've changed to match them, then I've got the body language and expressions to give me the feedback. So where Paul and others are using the micro expressions as lie detection, I'm mainly using it as a truth seeker. So when I'm reading somebody and I'm getting the feedback as I'm talking to them, I want to know, have I read them right? Is there something emotionally going on? And if there is, how can I help them around that? Because it's all about the therapy side of things. And at the very tail end, yes, are they telling me the truth when they're talking to me? But I don't focus on that telling me the truth part. I focus on, have I read them right? And if there is something emotionally going on, how can I uh, work with them to help them through that? Even if I'm doing a sale, for instance, and the person's caught up in something else, I'm wasting my time trying to do the sale until I can make a connection with them to find out whatever's going on, steer them, help them through that. And in doing that, I build greater trust with them. And I don't actually sell anything, but people will buy a lot from me because I've created that relationship with them and made sure that through that process, they got to know me over a period of time, that period of time the way I've talked to them, they got to like me. And in the process and the way I've done it, they've got to trust me. Okay, so learning these skills uh, made it to where you could build more productive relationships with the people yeah, around you. Yeah, well, the skills have always been come down to, first of all, having those four areas, the facial features, the facial expressions, the body language, and also then knowing how to talk to somebody. But it's been the experience of um, all the different things that I've done. If I look back at all the things in my past, yeah, at the time I was going through them, 
I would have liked to have not gone through them. But I realized that I appreciate them now because they've made me who I am today. So it's been a combination of all the experiences that I've had and the things that I've learned along the way, and especially having that attitude long before I ever heard um, John Wooden say that uh, statement. I've been living that way most of my life, and that was always learning, always looking at what else can I learn and how can I apply that to, you know, to where you can grow even further and further. And so it's, as I said, you know, everything you listen to in life, keep an open mind. You know, when people come to me and they say, Alan, I'm a skeptic, and I go, great. You got an open mind or a closed mind? And they go, oh, what do you mean? I say, well, if you're going to ask me questions, if you're asking me questions because you want to know how something works, ask me every question. I'll sit here all day long answering your questions. If you're looking to find fault with something, I don't want to talk to you. Go away. I'll talk to somebody else who wants to uh, find out. So be a skeptic. Question everything that you're told, but keep an open mind about it. Look at it. Well, how can this help me? Not how can I put it down? How can I? Because it doesn't go with my uh, belief system. Therefore, I'll put it down. I go, in my case, I go, that doesn't fit with my belief systems, but how? What actually extra truths in there is my belief systems? Can I improve my belief systems? So I'm always looking for improvement, not protection. People who are insecure, they want to protect how they're feeling at the moment. They will justify all their anger and everything else, and they'll keep themselves locked in a prison in the process. You know, I agree, and I think that people also kind of take that mindset when it comes to you know political stuff, especially in America. I'm sure from what you've seen and such, to mm -hmm. where people always look at the other side and they always get into these discussions on Facebook or whatever else with the intent to disprove what someone else says, instead of trying to maybe understand why the person may have come to that conclusion or maybe to potentially try and see some of the truth, they might be on the other side. And so I definitely agree with that, where if more people went into uh, conversations, uh, different forms with a mindset of trying to learn, you know, from that quote that you talked about and trying to understand or piece things together, as opposed to just trying to affirm their beliefs, I think that uh, we would get much better results in our in our lives and in our relationships. Yeah. So if we look at our politicians, you know, here in Australia, from what I've seen overseas, it's no different. It's extremely hard to respect any of them. You know, we hear them in Parliament time over here. They're having a it's like children in a, you know, a schoolyard who are fighting. They're all trying to put everybody else down. Now, I've got my belief about politics is the politicians only have two uh, major uh, focuses. If they're not into power, it's to get into power. And once they're in power, then to stay in power. Anything else that gets done, we're just lucky to get a great, great result out of it if we get a result. It's all about being in those positions. Whereas and we, in business, we say, right, don't bag your competition. You raise your competition up. So if somebody said to me and asked me about the different profiling systems, I'll talk about all the value that they have. And then I will add my value on top of that. If you raise your competition up and then stand on their shoulders, you're much higher than everybody else. But if you push them down into the gutter and then try and stand on their shoulders, you're in the gutter as well. And this is what our politicians are doing every day. They're putting it the other side down. A smart politician would look at the other people, the other side's um, ideas and go, hey, that's a great idea and lift that up but then put their value on top of it and they'd be even higher again. There'd be less arguments because most of the time that politicians are just using the time to argue with each other, to put each other down. That's all they're doing. The campaigns are always dirt campaigns. How can I put the dirt on the other person? What about lifting yourself up? 
let us look at you with some, some respect because all we do is we lose respect for one side and we're then going to choose the lesser of the two evils. Well, I prefer them to lift the other comp their competition up and lift themselves up higher so I can then vote for the best, not discount the worst. Completely change our attitudes and our politicians would have a lot more respect from the public. They'd be a lot more powerful in what they're able to achieve. And they'd be a lot healthier themselves. Because look at every politician, the moment they go into politics, they get old very fast because it's all about this backbiting and fighting and carrying on like little children. Yeah, I, I appreciate your perspective on that. And uh, I definitely am glad that you also shared that. It's definitely something for people to consider for the ones that haven't thought about it in that way. And so I guess now that we're kind of wrapping up with time, uh, what would you say to the listeners as far as on where they could go to find your content if they like to learn more about what you do and also about the science and art of reading people? Okay, well, to find out about what I do, uh, my website is my name, which is alanstevens.com.au, uh, U for Australia, Alan with one L, A-L-A-N, and Stevens, S-T-E-V-E-N-S. They'll be able to find all about uh, profiling in there. They'll find out all the, the success stories that are in there, people's uh, 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 testimonial videos. The other thing is to go onto the Facebook page and do a search for the Campfire Project. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, you'll find there are other uh, campfires on there. But if you look for the Campfire uh, Project community page, the business page, you'll uh, that'll come up straight away. And from there, you'll be able to find the group page. Now, the reason I've got two, the group page is where all the, the stories come in, the, what, the panel discussions and the one-on-ones. Right. The community page was created because, as I said, the one-on-ones have got to be kept protected. I don't let any trolls near the people who've told their stories because those people have had the courage to get up and tell their story. They're inside the campfire project, but I advertise the stories out on the community page. And I do that for two reasons. For people who are out there to know the campfire project exists, to go, well, hey, this sounds like a great story. I'll go into the campfire project to hear it. So we grow our community, but at the same time, it protects the people inside the community itself. And so that's why I've got those two pages. So the Campfire Project community page and then the Campfire Project group page. Okay, great. And I'll also make sure to put any um, important links in the description to the episode as well. But um, that pretty much is everything. And so I really appreciate you coming on the show today. I think that we had some really good discussion and you uh, made some extremely valuable points that I think a lot of people will be able to take and apply to their life to get better results in their relationships and with uh, dealing with people. And so thanks for coming on the show, Alan. Oh, my pleasure. I'll give you an extra link, which will be one of my free courses, which will give an idea of how this stuff, the reading people works and a couple of traits they can go and test for themselves. Uh, that I'll, there's a, I'll give that as, uh, as a free gift to your people. All right. Thank you for that. I definitely appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, then take care.